Nothing is better than you. Uh, Father God, you turn graves into gardens. Uh, Lord, I pray that what we get to talk about today, um, that we get to share, um, that that is true, and that there are people um, who don't know that, that we have a God who is crazy, a God who makes the impossible possible, a God who redeems the furthest out, a God who redeems us. So I pray that whatever is from me, no one remembers, but what is from you will be echoed on to eternity. Now we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You guys may take a seat. We are going to be in your Bibles in Romans chapter 10. If you're new, my name is Alex Holroyd. I'm an elder here at Cross Community, and it's a privilege to kind of be up here with you. Um, Hey, that last song, I I love that line. It says, nothing is better than you. I was remembered, the the first person who shared the gospel with me when I was in high school, um, I was chasing a lot of things that I I, I really thought was better than him. And um, I remember uh, there's a guy who's a young life leader, and he asked me, he said, hey, Alex, um, if you were God, would you create something to be better than you? And I was like, no. He's like, why? I was like, because I would want to be the best. He goes, exactly. Do you think the things you're chasing after are actually better than him? He goes, I think you're just, I think you're missing out and chasing after the little. And I was like, what? I don't know why my mind was blown with just that statement. I was like, huh, I'm choosing the, the least. I, I think I want what's better. And so um, we're going to be diving into, uh, we're in this study called um, ekklesia, which is the church. And it's a Greek word that just simply means to gather. Now we've been talking about this for the past few weeks, that church is, is more than the gathering, but it's not less than the gathering. So it's not like I go to church, but I never gather with anybody. That wouldn't really make sense. And we've been using this definition um, of the local church. And so I'm going to read that. It's on your uh, bulletins. It says, the local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders who preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word and, observe, and, um, and to observe the ordinance of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable, and walk in holiness. And this last part is what we're going to talk about today. And they work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this idea of advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth is this idea of evangelism. Now, I don't know about you, but when you hear the word evangelism, I don't know what goes through your mind. Maybe you think like evangelical and like that can have positive, that can have negative terms. Or maybe you think like Billy Graham and the Crusades. And um, maybe you think like people who pass out tracts. Um, I was in college and uh, this place called Methodist University in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And a friend came up to me. He's like, hey, Alex, we're gonna go downtown uh, Fayetteville and we're gonna, we're, gonna pa- we're gonna like evangelize. I just have never heard that term like that. I was like, what do you mean we're gonna evangelize? He goes, oh, we're gonna pass out these cards and I was like, and it was a Monopoly card that says, get out of hell free card. I was like, you go do that, my friend. I will not. <laughs> um, but hey, maybe that's, maybe that you have that thought of evangelism. Or maybe you've been to like a, a sporting event, like a football game, and there's a guy with a big bullhorn, and he's just telling you all the sins that you've probably done in your life. And, and he's just like beautifully describing hell and that we're all heading there. Like maybe that's your picture of evangelism. Um, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of evangelism, but I hope today that we might 
maybe we'll look at it with a fresh idea. And so I want to take this uh, quote. It's from a guy named Gene Getz. He was a professor at Moody Institute. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he wrote a book called The Sharpening um, sharpening the focus of the local church, a book a lot of church planners um, read constantly. And here's what he says about um, the importance of the health and vitality of a church. He says, believers need three vital experiences to grow into mature Christians. They need a good Bible teaching that will give them theological and spiritual stability. They need deep and satisfying relationships, both with each other and with Jesus Christ. And they need to experience seeing people come to Jesus as a result of corporate and individual witness to the non-Christian world. I love that he says, hey, here's the three things that are super important. You need to be in a Bible-believing, teaching church. You need to be in fellowship with believers and fellowship with Jesus. And the third, you've got to have a heart that reaches the lost. I give this picture to my friends and campaigners. It's a Bible study we do in this ministry called Young Life. And I have them hold hands and they face inwards. And I go, you see what this is? It's community, but it's a holy huddle. And what I mean by that is there's a whole outside world that we're not paying attention to. I was like, that's not what we're about. And I have them hold hands and face outwards. And I go, this is a missional community. This is what we're about. We have community, but we're always bringing people in. And that is the picture of the church. And that's what we're doing. That's, that's evangelism. It's, we have community with one another, but we're always looking back on who are we bringing in with us? And so as we look at the term, what is evangelism? I was talking to uh, Grayson and he was asking me, he's like, hey, do you have your outline for this? And real quickly, this is probably like a week ago. And I was like, I mean, basically it's people need Jesus. They need to hear about Jesus. And so we need to tell them about Jesus. All right. All right. <laughs> That's kind of it. Um, I don't think Taylor would want me to do that, but that is basically what this passage is when we read Romans 10. And so we're going to talk about uh, what is evangelism? Who does it? What motivates us to do that? And then I want to end practically like, so how do I do it? All right, I want to get some practical parts in there. So this first part, what is evangelism? I want to go back to Romans 10, and I'm going to read verse 13 first, um, and then we'll read 14 through 15. Here's Paul. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This last part where it talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. That preach right there, that's the yangelizo. That's the Greek word for proclaim the gospel. It's the word which we kind of get the root word for evangelism. I love how simple Paul is saying it here. He goes, all right, people need to know Jesus. They need to believe in him. And they can't believe in him unless someone tells them. They can't tell them unless someone preaches. And they can't preach unless someone sends them. It's basically going, no one's going to know unless someone goes and tells them. It's not like you wake up from a dream. You're like, I just believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. You know, like it's, that's not the way it works. It's somebody tells you it. And man, do I thank God for the person who told me it. I think when you're in your community groups, there's a question of just asking the question, hey, who first told you? Maybe it was a preacher or maybe it was a coworker or maybe it was a friend. Um, it'd be a great question to kind of pass around. But if we were to define evangelism, you could say it's simply sharing the gospel with somebody else. 
That's an easy one. Just sharing the good news. But let's go like a, maybe even easier. Uh, Martin Luther, when he was on his deathbed, uh, he had a, a person like person like recording his his last words, which that's strange, but you know. Um, so Martin Luther like was looking at him. He goes, "Record this. <laughs> Get your pen and paper." And uh, he says, "We are all beggars." That was it. <laughs> no, he said that because previously Martin Luther said this: "We are all beggars. This is true. We are mere beggars showing other beggars where to find bread." And so if I could give you the simplest definition of what evangelism is, it's this. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It really is that simple. It's not like you have to have a high degree of what the gospel is. It's not that you have to have the greatest apologetics. You just simply need to know one person and know him really well. And you point people back to him. And so when we think about this, I hope you hear that over and over. It's one beggar telling another beggar where the food's at. An example of that is in John 4, there's a, it's called the woman at the well. Uh, when you read John 4, uh, Jesus says he had to go through Samaria. And it was noon, so it was like super hot. And he gets to this well, and there happens to be a woman there. And normally you would go to the well during like the cool of the day. Um, but she would go at like the heat of the day to make sure she didn't see anybody because her and possibly the other um, women would not get along. Um, Her life may have looked a little different than theirs, as we'll find out later in the story. And so Jesus goes up to her and says, hey, um, what's up? Can I have some water? This is my version. Um, and, uh, And he said, and she said, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Because Jesus is doing something really different here. He's breaking down this race barrier between Samaritans and Jews, but he's also breaking this gender barrier that men and women, they don't really speak to each other. And he asked her, can I have some water? And she's like, I don't think you should do that. And he says, you know, if you knew who was asking, you would ask me for water and I would give you living water. And now she's like, What? you have endless supply of water. Like she gets real practical, like, oh my goodness, I never have to come back here again. I can just like have a cup that just endless water. And Jesus is like, no, that's not exactly what I'm saying. And, and, and so he tells her, hey, why don't you go get your husband? And she goes, mm, I don't have a husband. And I think Jesus says this very tenderly. He says, um, I think that's right when you say you don't have a husband because um, you've had five. And, and the person you're with now is not your husband. The why I believe that that was very tender and not harsh, sometimes you can read that and you're like, ooh, um, is because her response afterwards. And so he tells her that, and she um, is amazed, like, oh my goodness, are you like, like, I think there's a Messiah coming. Like she, her mind's kind of blown by just that statement. He goes, there's a Messiah coming one day and, and I, can't, I can't wait to kind of meet him. And, and Jesus says, the one who is speaking to you is he. Now, catch this. The first person that Jesus reveals his true identity of being the Messiah is to a Samaritan woman who has a bad reputation in town. That makes me feel great because it means he will love me if he's going to her and says, I want to tell you something unbelievable, that he chose her to be the first person And this is her response. John 4, 28 through 29, leaving the jar of water. That was the whole reason she came. So she just dropped the jar of water of which she went up there for. 
Leaving the jar of water, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way towards him. Her testimony of just running back to the town going, guys, guys, there's somebody up here. You need to see him. Like, could this be the Messiah? And they're like, whoa, what is happening with her? And they follow her. And then listen to this a little further down, verse 39 through 42. When the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So they believed the gospel because of her testimony. He told me all that I've ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him and asked him to stay with them, and they stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves. And we now know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. There wasn't a great theological debate. She's like, you just need to come. Like, come and see. Come check this out. Just, just come with me. And that invitation alone was enough. Now, the question is like, oh, so what is our message? Because that's, that's the key. Like, what should I say? Like, what if I, what if I mess it up? What if I don't give the right analogy and, like, this person hates Jesus now? Like, I don't know if you've ever had that pressure. Um, and I love this story, not story, I love this passage in, in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because um, I don't know about you, if you've ever been like, all right, I feel like I need to invite them to church, or I feel like I just want to tell them that Jesus is awesome, and I want to explain it to them. But I'm like really scared, because like, what if like, this is my fear? Like, what if they're like, you're dumb, and they punch me in the face? Like, that's like the worst case scenario in my mind, I guess. Um, and I like it because Paul had the same feeling. So this is what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5, it says, when I, came to you, brothers, you did, um, did, uh, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the test. I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God, not with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That was his message. He's like, hey, I didn't come to you with fancy analogies. I didn't come to you with like a light show. I just came to you with Christ, him being the savior and him dying for your sins. That's the message. That's what I got for you. And I was in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of the power so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of man, but the power of God. See, Paul understood right. We as evangelists, we are simply people that just tell the good news. We're not trying to manipulate people into believing something. The power of people coming to know Jesus is God's responsibility. It's not our responsibility. And when we mix that up, we do a lot of weird things. Like we like to do the thing where like, we're going to put the fear of hell in you that like, if you don't believe, you know where you're going. Right? Like, there are th- I won't go there. Okay. Like we just kind of, sometimes we'll, we could be manipulative. We could use shame. And I love that Paul's going, I'm not doing that. I'm just simply telling you the truth. In Romans 2.4, like, write this down. Just write Romans 2.4 down. And it says this, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. The kindness of the Lord. It's not like the hell houses that they used to have to scare people into believing in Jesus. It's the kindness of the Lord. Amen. I love that. Um, But then here's an interesting study that was done. The Barna Group did this study back in 2019. Pre-COVID. Remember those days? Wild. And um, they did this study, 
is that 47% of participating Christians who are millennials, now don't hate millennials after that, okay? Like just relax, all right? But 47% of practicing millennials um, believe that sharing your faith with someone else in the hopes they believe is wrong. Now, before we're like, those millennials, um, I, I do wonder a little bit if it's not like they saw people um, twist it in ways to manipulate, and they're like, I don't want to be about that. That could be. That's just an opinion. I have no idea. Um, but I loved, I remember when I was in college, there was a uh, magician's pen and teller. Do you guys remember pen and teller? One guy never talks. The other guy's like super loud, and they make funny jokes, and they do magic. It's awesome. And uh, teller tells this, he's on, a, he's on YouTube, he did this vlog, which is just a blog, which if you know what a blog is, it's like, I don't know if I can help you on that one. It, it's someone just explaining their life, but in video form. And this is circa like 2008. And so he tells the story of this guy who came up to him at the end of one of his shows. And he said he was like dressed in a business suit and like looked real professional. And he just, Penn's telling the story, Teller's telling the story. He's like, he just gave me a lot of compliments. He's like, hey, I, I loved your act. I've always loved you guys. You guys are so funny. Like ever since I was a kid, like it's just been awesome. And, I, and I'm here on a business trip and I just, I wanted to come and watch you guys. And he was like, man, it was all so nice. And at the end, he's like, yeah. And I also, hey, I have this Bible for you. And I, I don't want to make it weird, but like, I just, I really wanted you to have it. And then he walked away. Now, Teller is like a staunch atheist. And, he's, and he says this in the, in the video. He's like, like, I think God is fill in the blank. Um, but he's like, you know, I liked how that guy cared enough about me that he thought he had the answer to life and he wanted me to know it. He would later say this, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share with them what you think is the answer to life? Man, did that convict me of the heart. I was like, oh, I worry about my own convenience and feeling awkward than I do about their eternity. <laughs> so what motive, I think the question becomes, okay, fine. Well, then who is supposed to do evangelism? Uh, that might be, um, yeah, who's supposed to do evangelism? This is a question is a good question to ask, and I want to stop right there um, because it's, it's, it's not even a point I put on your notes because it's a pretty easy one. Um, all of us, all of us are called to do evangelism, every single one of us. Now, yes, there are some, it says in, uh, let's go, it'll say in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, there are some that will say they have the gift of evangelism, but hear this, everybody has the responsibility of evangelism. Some might have the gift, like Billy Graham, D.L. Moody, fill in the blank, but everyone has the responsibility of evangelism. None of us get off the hook. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more when it comes to what motivates us then. What motivates us to do this? What motivates us to share the gospel? Uh, R.C. Uh, Sproul, uh, famous American Reformed theologian, tells the story when he was at Pittsburgh Seminary and his professor, a guy named Dr. Gershner, asked this question to him and like six of the guys at the table. He said, if predestination is true, why do evangelism? Okay, I'm going to pause there real quick because this word predestination, I kind of have to go in there just a little bit, but not long. If you're like, oh gosh, don't do it. Like I'll go, I'll go in just a little bit um, because you're like, what does that word mean? And so predestination is a doctrine that simply means that before the creation of time, God chose to save people. And you're going, what about the other people? 
There is the hard part with predestination. Um, because when you read scripture, you also see that all of us are moral agents that have free will to choose. It seems pretty evident in scripture. At the same time, God is sovereign and he, we can only choose if he opens our eyes to choose. And so the question becomes, well, which one is it? Is it free will? Is it predestination? Like I, It seems like scripture has both. And if you're going, I'm not gonna unpack that a lot, but I will give you a great resource. Uh, J.I. Packer has a book called uh, Evangelism and Sovereignty of God. It's 106 pages. Get it on Amazon. Awesome. Great book. Here's one thing he says that I think is so helpful. When the question comes, which one is it? Is it free will? Is it predestination? He, he simply says, um, both. <laughs> he says both. And he says, it's called an antinomy which is A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. But also I'm horrible at spelling, so don't, don't fact check that. But an antinomy, and here's what the word antinomy means. It says when there's a contradiction, but there's not a contradiction. Or when he would say, J.A. Packer says, when there seems to be an apparent contradiction, but really there isn't. And the example he gives is, is light. So things are either particles or they're waves. But light is a particle and a wave. And we're like, I don't know how that makes sense. It's an antinomy. So there's, when it comes to this idea of, of free will predestination, I'm just gonna stop right there to go, it's an antinomy. It's both and. All right, back to the story. Okay, so R.C. Sproul has asked this question and he's going, I don't know what to say. And everyone in front of him are like, Dr. Gershner, I have no idea. Next person, hmm, I got nothing. The next person, yep, got nothing. And it finally comes to R.C., and this is what he says. I know this is not what you're looking for, but I hope to give you, and I hope to give you some profound answer, but I have none to give. One small point that I think we should notice is that God commands us to obey and we should do it. Or that God commands us to evangelize and therefore we should obey. It's a simple thing. He commands us to do it. And Dr. Gershner just starts laughing. He goes, yes. If the God of the universe tells you to do something, then it's probably good to listen to him. <laughs> so what is the first motivation? It's obedience. Obedience to God's word. That's why we're all called to evangelize. Uh, you guys have heard it. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. You can't make disciples if they're not told the good news. All right, so Part of discipleship is sharing the gospel. It is evangelism. It's not less than that, but it, is, it can be more than that. But you need to be sharing the gospel. And he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said this, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command to obey. We're all called to obey that. If you're wondering like, oh, that's not like one time Jesus says that. Um, there's five times Jesus says the Great Commission in all the Gospels and in Acts. One other spot in Mark 16, 15, he says, go into the world and preach the Gospel. So if Jesus tells us to do something five times, I don't think we could like put our head in the, in, the, in the carpet and be like, ah, la, la, I don't know if I heard you. He's like, no, that was pretty clear. We need to obey to share the Gospel. Okay, that leads to this next part, which is my, I'm joking, this isn't my favorite. Um, the next thing is the wrath of God. 
the wrath of God as a motivational factor in sharing the good news. Ephesians 2.12 says this, remember that you were in that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in this world. John 3.18 would say, whoever believes in him is not condemned and whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the uh, name of the only son of God. What I'm saying here is it's the motivational factor is not the means by which we share the gospel. We don't use the wrath of God in sharing the gospel. Like that's not your main focus. It is a motivational factor to know this. If they don't know Jesus, what happens? Like if no one tells them the good news, like what's going to happen to them? And I think if we're honest, we don't like that answer. And so we don't ask that question. We go, oh, I'm sure like they're in heaven. I don't know. Like, I'm sure somebody will tell them. It doesn't have to be me. But we never get to the heart of like, hey, what if no one tells them? It is this motivation that got the great missionaries that got them to go. For example, I love this. Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott wrote in his diary, I dare not stay home. I dare not stay home while the Kichiwas perish. I dare not stay home while these Kichiwas, while they are perishing. I can't stay home. It's not okay. Um, I, I want to share a little bit of the story of the, of the five missionaries who went to Ecuador with the hopes of, 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 of bringing Jesus to the, um, the Alca Indians, the Alca people. See, these people were known uh, that they couldn't really make contact with them because whenever you, someone would get really close, they would take a spear and they'd spear you. So that was not good. And so they kind of came up with a plan. Like, what if we got in by plane? And like, we would make connection by plane and they would land the plane and, and kind of start to have a conversation with them. And, and a lot of their friends were like, hey, this is like a really not a good idea. And, and maybe like you shouldn't worry about them because like there's such a little amount of them. Like, why would you spend that much time if there's such a little amount of people? One of the pilots, a guy named Nate Saint, wrote this letter um, on December 25th on Christmas, a few weeks before they were to make contact for the first time with these people. Um, I'm going to read the first part and skip down to the next part for time reason, but he writes this. As we weigh the future and seek the will of God, does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for just a few savages? As we ask ourselves this question, we realize that it is not the call of the needy thousands. Rather, it's the simple announcement of the prophetic word that there shall be some from every tribe in his presence in the last day. And in our hearts, we feel that it is pleasing to him that we should interest our lives in making an opening for the Alka prison for Christ. A little bit down, he says, if God could grant us this vision, the word sacrifice would disappear from our lips and thoughts. We would hate the things that seem so now so dear to us. Our lives would suddenly be too short and we would despair of the time-robbing distractions any, um, and charge the enemy with all, of our in it, with all of our energy in the name of Christ. May God who helped us judge ourselves by the eternities that separate the Alcas from the comprehension of Christmas and him who he was rich for our sake became poor so that we might, through his poverty, become rich. Wow. It was his heart, it was the heart of these missionaries that said, I'm not okay that these people are throwing themselves headlong into a Christless night, and we have something to do about it. 
It'd be two weeks later on January 3rd, they'd actually make contact for the first time. They would land the plane and the guys got out and they got to talk to some of the Alcas. Um, they came back a little bit later on January the 8th um, and it didn't go well. Um, something happened, something kind of spooked them. And Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Ed McCauley, Roger Yarden um, would be speared to death from the very people they were trying to save. Uh, Nate Saint had a son who was five years old at the time named Steve Saint. And he kept asking, like, why did my dad not protect himself? He had a gun. Like, why did he allow it to happen? A lot of them, all five of them could have protected themselves, and they didn't. They took the spears. And his mom told him, your dad loved those people. It'd be a couple years later that um, Nate Saint's wife and Elizabeth Elliott and Rebecca Saint and their kids would actually find a way in and go live with those people. And in that ability, they got to share the gospel. And this is a way they would share it. They say, you know how you guys spear each other when one person, when this tribe spears this tribe, this, this tribe spears this tribe. Um, hey, what happened is that you guys have, have, have broken, you have hurt God. And you know what he did? Um, instead of spearing you, he took the spears for you. And it changed the village. So much uh, that one of the men, Makai, who, um, who was one of the people who speared Nate Saint, uh, would end up baptizing Nate Saint's son, Steve. He would actually baptize not just him, but his own um, Steve Saint's son. Steve Saint would call Makai uh, father, and his kids would call him grandfather Makai. How is that possible? USA Today did a, uh, they were doing a, um, an article on this and they looked at, they were talking to Steve Saint, who's older now, and this is probably in the 2000s. They said, hey, how, I can understand you forgiving the person that killed your dad. I can't understand you loving him. And Steve Saint said this, my mom taught me that hurt people hurt people. Forgiven people love people. He would have a, an amazing relationship with Makai. And they also asked him, how could this be? And he pointed to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He goes, hey, that person who killed my father, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. That's not who he is anymore. What? How is that real? Like, explain that to me. Apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, I don't get it. It's unbelievable. And it's that love that leads us to this next point, which what is the third motivation factor? Christ's love. It's his love. Now, not like our love for Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, for Christ loves, and here it says, it says controls us. In the NIV, I love this one. It says, for Christ's love compels us. His love for us, it compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He says, the reason why we need to go and tell people that God is crazy about him, that he loves them is because he first loved us, that he died for us, that I'm a forgiven person. And so I get to share about a God who is crazy about them. His love compels us. 
Now we gotta be careful because sometimes we can do, we can share the gospel as just like a check, like we're checking something off. Like, okay, I'm, I've got, Jesus told me I need to do this, so I need to go do it. And, and so I just need to go tell somebody like, hey, like Jesus loves you to, to kind of get off your checklist. Um, that is not like a loving way to do that if you're the recipient of that. Um, ah, I want to tell that story, but I can't. Okay, um, that's not the best way of doing that. Here's, something, here's a different way. Um, there was a evangelist named uh, Reverend, uh, make sure I got his name right, uh, Reverend uh, Fernando. He was also an evangelist with Billy Graham uh, during like the 70s. And they were at this conference and this woman came up to him and said, hey, Rev, that's what I think she would say. Hey, Rev, um, I, I have my friend. Um, she just got back from New York and it, it hasn't been good for her. She, she left Australia to go to New York, expecting to kind of find this new life. And instead she was met with hardship and was, um, was used after, um, she was used by men. Um, like a lot. And so um, she came back here and she came back here with like vengeance of hating God. And, and I can understand why. Will you talk to her? And so the reverend um, says, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely talk to her. And, and as he gets ready to talk, he's doing small talk and she's like not having it. You know, she's like, just stop talking to me. And he says this, um, he said, hey, can, can I pray for you? And she said, pray if you like, but don't preach. And don't expect me to listen. And so he began to pray for her. And he could see in her eyes just like pain. You know, you're with someone who's just been hurt. You're like, ah, you've just been through the ringer. And so as he was praying, he just began to cry. And and as he was done praying and tears were just kind of wiping off, he said, all right, I'm done. You can go. And this is what her, this is how she responded. No, I won't go. You can preach to me now. No man has ever cried for me. That's what it looks like to love people into the kingdom. That you care for their soul and you care for them. Not just one or the other. It's his love that compels us. So as we kind of bring it home then, how do we do it? Like what's the practical? Because I do want to get practical. How do we get into this? Okay, Um, the most important person you win to Christ every day is you. First and foremost, I had a good spiritual mentor of mine, and this is what he'd say. He said, hey, Alex, are you inviting others into the life that you're living? I'll say that again. He says, are you inviting others into the life that you're living? Like if you're like, hey, come follow Jesus, but you're like miserable and don't really do anything about Jesus, that's not like the greatest witness. They're like, oh, I don't know if I want to follow your God. (laughs) Seems like you're not doing well. So I don't know if that's the God I want. Um, or maybe you're not even living that life. And so it's a great question. Like, am I living the life um, that I'm inviting others to? Now, that's not to say you don't have to, be, you have to be perfect to tell people about Jesus. Thank the Lord that's not true, right? Again, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Okay, but the idea of simply the importance of us sharing the gospel. And I, I, one thing I guess I need to hit here is when we're practically sharing the gospel, there is a nonverbal gospel and a verbal gospel. This is what I was kind of hitting at. Am I living the life that I'm inviting others to? See, back in the day, I think this pendulum keeps swinging in Christianity, but we'd hear this phrase from Francis C, which isn't really from him, which is like, preach the gospel always, but use words when seldom. He never said that, but like, 
we gave him credit for that. Um, he actually was the opposite. He was, he loved telling people about Jesus verbally. But anyway, uh, I, I think we've done this sometimes. We've said, hey, if I just go hang out with my buddies at the bar, but I don't drink beer, then they'll know Jesus. Cause I, you know, like, cause I'm non-verbally like being a good person. And while that's tr- true, there needs to be a verbal actually sharing of the gospel. But here's where you got to be careful. If you're someone who's like, I want to tell people about Jesus, but your life doesn't reflect that, then maybe you get a response. Um, I had a friend respond like this. Um, hey, sorry, stop talking. Your deeds have outspoken your words. There needs to be both. We need to go and love people and love our neighbors really well. And that will earn the right to get a share about a God who loves them like crazy. But you can't forsake one for the other. It's a both and. You'll see that in John 13, 34 through 35. It says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I mean, this is like the call for the nonverbal gospel. Hey, how is the outside world going to know about me? It's the way you love one another. What's I love? Because that's so like basic. Like the first step is like, can I just treat people well? Encourage people? Like not yell at people? You know, when I'm driving, someone cuts me, cuts me off. Like I'm not, you know, doing the other stuff. Like if our life looked like that, people are like, huh. There's something different. And then comes the second part, which is the verbal gospel. It's that Romans 10. It's how are they going to know unless somebody tells them? And so a couple of helpful tips of like, how can I, as me, as a believer in Christ, kind of start to share the gospel with my friends that doesn't feel awkward. And I'll give you, here's a couple of tips. Um, maybe a first good tip is like, make known to the people you're around, that's around you. Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's people you play pickleball with. Um, Random pickleball out there. Love it. Okay. Um, that you let them know um, that you go to church. You could tell them where, but just as simple as like, oh yeah, no, we go to church. You can just bring that to conversation because that lets them know, oh, you are somebody who's a Christian. The second example I might give you would be to mention how your faith has impacted you. This would be so important. Like I'll give you an example. I get this all the time. It's like, oh my goodness, you have four girls under the age of six what? What's going to happen? Just don't ever, you know, say that. That's a horrible thing. But I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, and here's a great response. Hey, my faith in Jesus has really helped me through that. What that tells them is like, hey, it's not just I go to church. It's like my faith actually impacts me. But then maybe you get them to the point where they're like, all right, Alex, I'm in. Tell me the gospel. And this is where we go, uh-oh. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Jesus, right? Like we don't have to say. And so I want to give you a real quick practical, we call it the one verse gospel, a way to share it with your friends. I did this with my daughter, Addie Mae. Uh, she's six a couple months ago. And she's like, dad, I want to follow Jesus. And I was like, all right, here's what we're going to do. And so I drew this on a napkin for her. And the most beautiful thing was she took that. And now with her sister, she's constantly doing it with them. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like we're doing okay. Um, she also like kicked one of her sisters. So we're not doing that great. You know what I mean? So, here we go. Uh, the one verse gospel. All it is is memorizing Romans 10, sorry, Romans 6, 23, which says, for the wages of sin is death. And I'll write the whole verse, but in this case, I'll just show you the first part. I'd write this on top of a napkin and I'd ask this question. I'd say, hey, what's a wage? I'll give you an example to Addie Mae. Hey, Addie Mae, what's a wage? 
And she goes, I don't know, I'm six. I go, I know. Uh, a wage is something you earn. Like, you know, when daddy goes to work, he earns money. So a wage is something you earn. She goes, oh, okay. And then it says the wages, and I circle the word sin, and I write sin next to it. And I go, the wages of sin, um, sin is not like just doing bad things out of me. It's actually, it's just turning your back and saying, God, I want to do life my own way. And we all have done that. And it says the wages of sin is death. And in the Bible, and I'll kind of explain this, in the Bible, when it talks about death, it's not just like physical death, it's actually like separation from God. And so I'll draw this chasm, which I have no idea if it's up there, but I can't see it, but I assume it is. And so now there's this chasm there. And then I go, um, this is the greatest but in the Bible. It says, but, right? The gift of God. So then I write gift. I go, Addie Mae, who pays for a gift? Do you? And she goes, no, I don't pay for a gift. I was like, great. Okay, so the gift of God is what? And I circle eternal life and I write down eternal life. That God has given us a gift and it's eternal life. It's eternal life. It means we're back into the relationship we've always created for. It's not just heaven. It's right now, eternal life. And then I end by, by saying this. Hey, a, a gift doesn't cost you anything, Addie Mae, but does it cost somebody something? She goes, oh yeah, mom and dad buy gifts and Papa and Gigi. They always buy gifts, right? And I go, exactly. So this gift somebody paid for, and it was by Jesus. And you draw the little bridge right across it. And maybe if you want to be like that person, I like this is funny, you can draw the cross and say it's Jesus' death when he died on the cross. It paid the price to give us eternal life. And this is where I feel like as Christians, we, we can present this to them and go, do you want it? Like, do you want this? And don't get nervous about this part because I feel like if they say yes or no has nothing to do with you. It's what the Lord does. We are just messengers of sharing the good news. But if they do say yes, if you're like, so what do I do next? Um, you do what I call, it's as simple as ABC. A, I admit that I need Jesus. I admit that I'm broken, I, I, that I'm a sinner, A. B, that I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he died for me and he rose again. And C, I come home. I come home. One of my high school friends, a guy named uh, Matthew, we were at this Young Life camp called Windy Gap, and he's like, Alex, um, Jacob needs to meet Jesus this week. Like, I've been praying for him all summer. He better meet Jesus this week. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's the way it works, buddy, but like, I'll pray with you. And, uh, and at the end of the weekend, long behold, like, he does. He, he has this encounter with Jesus, and Matthew gets to pray with him. And when Matthew got done praying, he came up to me and said, Alex, I got to pray with Jacob. And he, he did it. He met Jesus. But I don't know if I prayed right. So will you go and pray with him to like make sure it's good? <laughs> you don't have to worry about that, all right? Um, but I just love his heart. It was like, I don't know if I did it right. Um, but it's as simple as that. So let's just end it with a couple applications then. Here's some applications. Maybe you can talk about in community group or on your, on your drive home. Who is someone God is putting on your heart that you need to share the gospel with? Just ask the Lord, who's somebody that he's putting on your heart that you need to share the good news with, both verbal and nonverbal? And if you're going, I don't know anybody, then will you have the courage to pray and ask God to bring somebody into your life? Here's the second one. Who is someone that you've stopped praying for because you believe there's no hope anymore? I don't know about you. I have those people that I'm like, I just kind of stopped praying for them. Here's my application will you start back? Will you begin to pray for them again? I want to end on one story, if, uh, if that's okay. 
you don't have an option. Um, but I want to end on one story that I think just, again, gets to the heart of what we do, of what we were called to do as the church to go and share the good news. One of my heroes in the faith is a guy named D.L. Moody. He was called Crazy Moody. He was wild. This is in the 1800s, and he was in Chicago, and he would, he would have this, uh, well, if you know what Young Life is, he'd have like a Young Life club in a, in a saloon, in a bar. He would go to this place called um, the Little Hell in Chicago where all these kids were like, kind of orphaned and he grabbed them all up and they'd take them to the basically Sunday school and he'd like play games and they would sing songs and sometimes they'd wrestle and then he'd give a five minute talk. And then this group got bigger and bigger and there's like a thousand people. They called them Moody's kids. So much that when Abraham Lincoln was going to the White House, he actually stopped to meet Moody's kids. Um, but eventually Moody had a heart um, just for letting people know that like, God loves them. And so during the Civil War, he would, uh, he would go to the battlefield after big battles, and he'd just look for any soldier from either side that was dying and didn't know Jesus, and he wanted just to tell them about Jesus. And some of his friends didn't, they kind of didn't like him for that. But in one story he, sell, he tells in particular, it was um, the battle, um, the Pittsburgh landing. And he was asleep, and this person yelled to him and said, hey, I need a chaplain, I need a chaplain. And he woke up and someone grabbed him and said, this person, um, I, I don't think they have much longer. They're, they're calling for you. Now, Moody wasn't a chaplain, but he's like, all right, I'll go. And so he goes, and this is what the man says. He says, can you help me die? Moody said, I would take you right up in my arms and deliver you right into the kingdom if I could. But I cannot help you die. And the man says, who can and Moody, with a little smile, says, Jesus. And he says, I have been a sinner all my life. Jesus would want no part of me. And Moody says, funny, that's exactly the person he came to save. And as he was talking to him, he began to open the Bible. And Moody said, I went to the only place that I thought would be helpful of another guy who was struggling with anxiety about where his soul was going. And it was Nicodemus in uh, John chapter three. And so he just started reading John chapter three over him. And the guy, had, his eyes were kind of open and it was going back and forth. And he got to this verse in verse 14 and 15. It says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And the man stopped Moody and said, will you say that again? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Will you say it again? That whoever believes may have eternal life. And he said, you can go now. And as he left, he saw the man um, clasping his hands and just saying, whoever believes in him has eternal life. As that man, to our knowledge, passed in to be with our Savior. Um. Moody had a friend who would write some songs for his like evangelist meetings. One of them was a guy named William Thompson. And he wrote this song for Moody called Softly and Tenderly. It goes, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. He's calling for you and for me. Hey, look through the portals. He's waiting. He's watching. Watching for you and for me. Come home. Come home. All you who are weary, come home. Moody would say at the end of his life, he said, if I could have given up everything I've ever done for the kingdom to have written that song, I would do it.
My hope and prayer is that we get to talk to people throughout this community and tell them to come home. There is a God who's softly and tenderly telling them to come. And maybe tonight you're going, or today you're going, hey, I've never experienced that for myself. I'd encourage you at the end of service, you can go back there and pray with somebody and go, hey, I want that. Oh, do I want that? And again, it's as simple as ABC. Um, Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are that you're a God who came to save sinners like us, who came to save sinners like me, who is the worst. Thank you that there's an invitation to come home, that there is a gift and there is a price, but that you paid it and I don't have to pay it. That I can walk freely into this relationship of which I was always created for. And I pray for the hundreds, if not thousands of people here in Beaufort, Beaufort County, who don't know because nobody's told them, or they don't know because nobody's loved them, or that nobody's had a kind word to them, would we as a church be that people? That people would come to know who Jesus is because of our witness here at Cross. And I pray not just Cross, but I pray for all the churches, that we would be witnesses of the God who came down to be speared for us and that we as forgiven people can be loved people. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.